0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Full of Energy, an AE podcast where we talk about workforce development, energy hot topics, and energy policy. The Association of Energy Engineers, otherwise known as AEE, is a professional organization of over 17,000 members and 32,000 actively certified individuals in over 105 countries. AEE serves your needs for career development, networking, and recognition. Today, we are joined by two award-winning certified measurement and verification professionals, Anna Kelly and John Feldman. Anna, why don't you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Thanks, Lori. happy to be here. Hi, John. Uh, hey, y'all, I'm Anna Kelly. I am a CMVP working at Power Takeoff, where we implement thousands of all virtual energy efficiency projects a year using the magic of machine learning and the super magic of advanced M&V on the back end to measure and verify and claim those savings for
0: utilities. John, welcome back to our podcast. You were on a couple of months ago. Can you give us just a quick, quick, brief introduction of yourself?
2: Sure. So, um, hey, Anna. Hey, Beth. My name is John Feldman. I uh, am a CMVP instructor. I have been for a few years, and I have dealt in my uh, professional life mainly with large industrial M&V projects uh, that are complicated and uh, been uh, reviewing those M&V plans and make sure they're implemented. And for those who may be wondering, I am originally from South Africa, which is why I have the accent and no one else does.
0: Okay. Thank you both for your quick introductions. I'm so excited for this episode because it is the first episode of its kind. John and Anna, We are going to begin exploring different ways that two well-known CMVPs might approach some projects and listen to the two of you try to understand where the other person is coming from so that you can progress on these hypothetical projects. So for the first scenario, a lumber mill joins a utility-funded strategic energy management program. In this scenario, you have been brought on to create the MMV approach for this project. Their plan is to mainly implement behavioral and operational measures, but they have some capital projects in their opportunity register as well. So let's start with John. John, why don't you tell us how you would handle this situation?
2: Uh, so this is interesting and kind of in my wheelhouse and things I've actually done. The There's always not enough information here, but for strategic energy management, we would be looking at first building a a baseline energy model of the entire facility so we can track over the two or three years of the SEM program um, what changes have been made. The challenge with industrial is that there are often many more variables than you can actually cope with uh, because there's production schedules, weather tends not to be an impact. And depending on whether the capital projects are funded separately through other incentives, they may have to be removed from the SEM, which leaves you with very little uh, bandwidth to to kind of measure the other the other bits of savings. However, the uh, other alternative is to divvy up the industrial facility into sections so that you can be uh, more uh, develop better models uh, with with limited variables.
0: Anna.
1: So when I'm looking at a strategic energy management program and I know I'm gonna have to measure the savings, I don't start with the baseline model. Uh, I start with the regulatory context, probably because I'm a bit of a policy person. So I need to know where we're operating. Are we in the US or Canada? Are we in a resource acquisition program? Are the savings that we're generating getting like exchanged on a market somewhere? Or are they just getting added into the big pile of congratulatory savings? So I find out where that is and then I decide, how good my baseline model has to be. But in a strategic energy management program, I've got all these humans I'm gonna have to deal with. This is not the kind of V where I get to unplug something and plug it back in with a meter. I'm gonna have to kind of build a relationship with these folks, because I'm gonna need data from them for the next year or maybe two years. So before I get going to build a baseline model, I'm going to find out who my energy champion on site is. I'm going to try to get in on some of the customer meetings so they can get used to seeing my face as a person who's going to be hassling them for data. And I also need to find out what granularity their data is at. Some people only have monthly data. And in an industrial facility, that lets me know right up how good my model is going to be able to be.
0: Okay, that was very quick. So now let's hear how you guys plan to solve some of these hypothetical um appro- approaches okay John so we're on
2: a yep. team together right yeah we sure are and, and this you, you actually just exposed my inner engineer and I did forget to mention in all of that other stuff that I am a chemical engineer by training but not by profession because I'm not certified but you could see right away I dove into the engineering you know how, how we're going to actually model this and save this but you're absolutely right and I I guess kind of in my day job I am inherently aware of the the contextual considerations of where these things are going so i have the liberty to kind of dive straight in but you're absolutely right that how you do how you build the model and how you measure the savings is entirely dependent on where those savings are going to go what the requirements uh of the program administrator or the evaluators are so i'm I'm with you on that, that that is the first step we really have to take in this journey of looking at SEM.
1: You know, that that's an interesting thing. If we were both hired independently and put on a team together, I probably wouldn't have like recognized that you work within a single regulatory context all the time. So you have this idea in your head of like what a strategic energy management program is and what those savings mean. Like you already know who the stakeholders are for you. But because I come at it from more of like a evaluation consultant vibe, I have to learn that from scratch every single time I approach a new client. So I would ask you all of these questions that are like, well, duh, answers to me.
2: Yeah, and and I think that's you know that is for me a valuable perspective as well because although I live in a single context, the um, the work I do with the SEM Collaborative is across m- multiple juris- jurisdictions and i can easily lose sight of the customers because for them this is even m- newer to them they don't really understand and and some most often don't even care about the regulatory because for them sm isn't about evaluations and regulatory it's about saving money for their company and and embedding energy management practices so there's another perspective there that i would i always have to consider is the customer's view is what's going to make them, you know, uh, I won't say comply, but do the work that they need to do, that we can show the the, the rate payers and the regulators and the evaluators that this has actually worked. And that's a bit of an interesting battle is because, uh, you know, you were saying, Anna, that you have to, you want to get in front of people so they can get to know you. Um, and that's part of the picture. But for me is always considering that the, the folks who are going to be implementing the energy savings have a different set of criteria and perspective than I do. And we need to make both of those work to be successful.
1: Yeah, so I might actually like I'll have my baseline model or I'll give it a good shot depending on what kind of data is available. But I've got to figure out how to, re- how to translate that baseline model to my customer. Um, let's say, let's, do you want to unpack a QSIM? You want to talk about Sure. QSs? All right. Why not? All right. We've got we've got two more minutes to go over this initial scenario. And we should probably explain how to talk about energy savings to our clients. So we get this graph, right? John and I, we're gonna we build this baseline model. We get some drivers of consumption and it it is tolerably well. It's an objectively okay model, barely above the minimum threshold in all things. And it comes out in kilowatt hours saved. We know our customers don't care about this. John, will you explain the graph that we're going to put together to show the client, how much they've saved?
2: Yeah, you, you, well, it's interesting because um, clients don't care about megawatt hours. Right, but you've got to put the, the dollars on that and that that is always a challenge with because there's peak demand savings, which are not always easy to see from a sum which is the kilowatt hours so how do you value those those savings I think the, the at least my experience of Qsum that is exciting and easy for end users to understand is the changes of slope which is is when you things are getting better or getting worse generally at least in, in my industrial experience of Qsum is that ch- it's it's the changes in slope that you're looking for and customers uh, we have a lot of uh, energy managers and SEM folks who have who uh Really, get a grip on that change of slope again is once once the 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 Q-Sum is stable and it's uh, uh you know it, it is a good uh performance measurement system. I think customers really love it because it, it explains things. but you're right, how do we put the dollars to that, and how do they tell their bosses that we've actually saved this amount of money because dollars is what speaks even in Canada? I,
1: I think we're going to be able to put together th- something compelling for our bosses to let them know that
0: we know how to approach this problem.
2: Absolutely. Teamwork makes the dream work.
0: Okay, so moving on to the next scenario. Your utility calls you because they've received a bunch of spreadsheets that have m and saving in them from a restaurant retrofit program. The fields aren't labeled very well, and there are so many spreadsheets. They want you to verify that the records accurately represent the savings from the projects. Anna, how are you starting the project?
1: I mean, this is my nightmare project. So whenever I get a packet of a bunch of poorly labeled spreadsheets and I have to verify that the customer did what they said that they did, um, I go back to the project planning documentation if I can find it in the spreadsheets. Uh, I have to go check my regulatory context and find out if we're using deemed savings or if we're doing uh, option A, B, C, or D, what are these spreadsheets represent? And then uh, I probably start with just like a raw inventory. If I'm in charge, hopefully I can delegate this work to someone else and have them send the client uh, a data request update with proper annotations or a code book. But no, that's really my nightmare scenario. And I'm hoping that in this situation, John and I can team up and he can help me make sense of these spreadsheets and not just give up on the whole lemon v from the get-go.
0: John?
2: Yeah, that's uh, interesting, Anna, that uh, I, again, I wouldn't have thought to go back to the original documentation. And that's almost my personality when I, I look at problem solving is, I tend to dive in, and you know, when I heard the scenario, the first thing that's that that came to my mind is to give the customer a call, and say, you know, what are these? You know, first of all, if 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 we don't know what the data is, it, it's really hard to do anything else. So that would be my first gut reaction would be to call the customer and see if they can find that out, and uh, you know, see if they can explain what that d- data is before I move move on. Um, then there's of course the, the ancillary information around what was actually done and talking about nightmare projects, we just, I just experienced one a few months ago where there were 255 columns of poorly labeled data and folks had left site and no one actually knew what that data was and we determined they never would be able to, and we had to pull the plug. So that is the worst case scenario.
1: Oh, you had to pull the plug.
2: Yeah. <laughs> in, in in common English, we could not pay the incentive because they could not prove that they'd done anything just because they didn't know what the data was.
1: You know, the way that you started this with calling the customer, I don't want to like get too into, you know, how different generations function in the workforce, but we know that like everybody has different habits. And the fact that Your first instinct was to make a phone call. And I was like, anything I can do to avoid, I'm a millennial and anything I can do to avoid having to make an unprompted phone call to a client, I will do first. I will read a thousand pages of other documents to avoid making that phone call until finally I say, okay, 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 I have to pick up the phone. I have to make a phone call. I can do this, I can do this. But it sounded really easy for you. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah i hadn't thought about that but but you're right that that is uh and it's actually something that i've encouraged over the years is um and i i didn't really clue into why this was the case but we often have we have vendors who do the technical review and do the m and v for our customers and i have found there is a deep resistance to actually calling the customer they will send out data requests and send out multiple data requests and i've always said look if you if you're if you don't get it the first time, then pick up the phone and call. And, and particularly with industrial customers, um, we've I found that you can save a lot of effort on everyone's side by just having a simple phone a phone call. So, however, I I also I'm as an engineer, I tend to be more uh, try and do the the email and the data things because it's I the thing that I don't like about phone conversations. Ironically, is with this type of information is that if i craft an email i can think about it and make sure it's clear whereas when you're having a conversation you know the, but having a conversation you have to get your thoughts in line and you have to be ready because the customer might not say what you're hoping them to say and you've got to guide the conversation but it tends to solve problems not all problems not all of life problems but certainly these Kind of what what are these data fields labor can be done very quickly and you phone the customer like, oh yeah, sorry, I just forgot to add the B and you oh the O oh, now it all make sense.
1: Yeah. There's something contextual there too though. Yes. Like if we if we got hired to do this together and let's say that we, you know, went in together on, as an RFP and it wasn't with our, our normal companies and we were just doing this by ourselves, and you suggested just client calling the client, I would be aghast. Because utilities I find like typically really want to protect exposure, not even exposure, but just like client touches. I find that they're really sensitive to like bothering their customers. And so I think, and we would have to like overcome that because I'd be like, no, you can't contact them. What if you need to call them back six times? The utility will not like that because the utility is going to get that record of how many times we reached out to the client and they're going to want it to seem very formal or at least that's like what i would where i would come from from an era of like ooh it's fundamentally bad to call or to even contact to get the data you want you're supposed to waste a bunch of billing hours up front <laughs> trying to piece together this impossible puzzle but you, that's not where you come from you come from a world where it's okay to call
2: yeah i i, I that's that is interesting. I, I never thought about that aspect, and and we, we, I mean, we're we're kind of not talking about the meat of M and V, but this is actually a very important part of M and V because this mm-hmm. is 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 central to what you do. Is is how do you get how do you engage with the customer? And, and you just made me think that I may be a bit renegade in that uh, context, although I do have oh, John. the uh, I do have the advantage that we. I typically deal with our large industrial customers at 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 a utility, so they're used to picking up the phone and and speaking to us. it's it's it is a high touch environment. Um, but I do sense now with our vendors that maybe explains a little bit more of the reticence to reach out because they don't want to bother calling the customer. And that explains something to me. you've you've taught me something right off the bad is that there are but you're absolutely right the contextual considerations on top of that is um, you know so you've got the customer being bothered contextual but also even with this back to this restaurant project is I you know the way it was stated is I don't know what anyone's trying to achieve so is it maybe these spreadsheets are not important in the whole scheme of things it's just as you said deemed, deemed savings but yeah really important topic we've actually touched on is how do you Minimizing, you know, engage the customer go get or solve the problems quicker without annoying the other stakeholders.
1: Yeah, and I think that's fundamental. You can't start an MNV project until you've decided how you're going to approach your data collection and your problem solving, and that's what we were presented with. And I mean, I think if we were working together and we were in a meeting, that in this call you would have convinced me that the calling the customer is worth it. Swallow, swallow that that I shouldn't be doing this. Feeling and give them a call and get the answer and do not go through the long exploration and the wasting of billing hours uh, to try to piece it together myself. Because, like, I think you, I think you would have convinced me with the phrase, "We don't know if this data is useful or not. We don't even know if it's the right data yet. Why even open the files?"
2: Yeah, it could be from someone accidentally sent it from some other project, but. Um... I just wanted to build on one little one other thing you, you said that, that came to mind and that is um one thing I have coached folks through for the last few decades is if you're going to call call the customer phrase your question very much in the context of I need your help to understand this as opposed to why on earth did you do this or what does this mean because customers can get very easily offended if they think they're talking to, I'm not going to say the I or the S word, but the simpleton who, 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 you know, you don't understand my thing at all. And you're asking me questions, like, you really could have read this up on Google, and you could have asked, you know, so I think that there's there is also, although there's an, although, as you said, calling someone is fraught with other dangers. If you tick the customer off, that is, all that other stuff is if not irrelevant but becomes into play because that's when a utility will get not only did you call the customer but you annoyed them and yeah it can be avoided it's not it's not difficult you just got to think it through before you before you do it
0: totally okay on to the next scenario your technical review delivery partner calls you with a dilemma they are reviewing a year one mmv report for a large fan vfd project in a steel mill And have discovered that during the reporting period, due to low customer demand for steel, the product schedule has changed significantly. The impact of production volumes on the baseline was not considered as part of the M&V plan and was never measured. They are seeking your guidance on the best approach to adjust the savings based on lower production.
2: Again, a very very real scenario, although in the sense that I would have pressured the planning of this M&V to take into account production, uh, even if it, it looks like it's going to be be constant, because you never know what's going to happen. Although this is real. And, and sometimes we have had customers who insist that nothing bad's ever going to happen. And that doesn't need to be an independent variable. My initial, again, engineering thought on this would be this isn't actually such a big problem, because you can simulate Baseline conditions um, under the lower production, in the sense that you can run the fan with the VFD full out. It's not one hundred percent. There is a bit of inefficiency built into the into the into the VFD itself, but you can take some measurements then after the VFD has been installed because you can essentially uh, run it as if there was no VFD and. Uh, build the model or, or, or build the baseline that you can compare to?
1: So from my hat here, when I know that a production schedule has changed between the baseline and the reporting period, I look to statistics to rescue me. So uh, my instinct here would not be to go to the facility and uh, test it with the fan running at different speeds, but to make estimates and projections based off of what we know now back onto the baseline period. So I have at my employee like seven different techniques that I can use to make the baseline data look the way the reporting period data looks like and I mean, this is one of those situations where I'm working with the technical review team. And so I need to make sure that the information that I'm going to produce for them is information that they know how to work with, that they can interpret, and that I'm not about to open a can of worms. And so I think I would call John and say like, all right, I can I can do this pretty cheaply right now. Um, and I can use some of those non-routine event techniques to try to statistically interpolate what that data would have been. Can our folks interpret that data? And if so, I can do it right now for real cheap and we don't have to go on site.
2: That is that is fascinating because, again, th- that's the, I mean, with M&V, we're always talking cost and accuracy. And that is something I have to fight against with myself and with sometimes I've ended is, they, is this accuracy worth the the money we're going to spend it and you're right at least me sitting in my office saying hey we'll just we'll do some more measurements on site that's engaging site people they might have to get contractors in it that's not a cheap exercise although I will defend my context is these are real projects I've come across and these are in the two to three million dollar incentive range so when we go to the customer and say, we need you to measure some stuff and they start bleating, we say, yeah, do you want the $3 million or don't you? However, the 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 challenge I have, and it's not a, an issue, but the challenge I have with statistics is explaining, and, and you kind of alluded to this, Anna, explaining this to others to say, we've done a, a less intrusive, less expensive approach and people's eyes glaze over the customer, um not the evaluators but the technical reviewers sometimes I even sometimes have indigestion about saying okay this sounds like good but I'm not <laughs> but- I, I can't feel it I can't <laughs> touch it um it's statistics it's magic with numbers and and that is a kind of a, a just a real not a problem but something that we have to find ways to to help people get their minds around that statistics is not black magic
1: yeah, no. And it, I think that you hit on something right there that is really fundamental to designing kind of a mitigation strategy for a problem like this. And it's that the project size matters. So yes. if this is a $3 million incentive project, yeah, we should probably send someone on site. We should calibrate submeters. We should we should do a really, really rigorous job because at no point are these costs going to exceed, let's say, 10 percent of the value of the project to whoever's claiming those ultimate savings. But I, I, I was having this conversation yesterday with some regulators about like, is the juice worth the squeeze for the additional rigor that you're gonna get using some of these techniques or at some point do you need to just say, no, we've decided a threshold, this is good enough because we're actually doing our customers a disservice and we're doing the utility a disservice if we limit the number of projects that we can do by being overly rigorous in our measurement and verification approaches. There is an appropriate level of rigor and it is not always 10 out of 10. I have found that like for me at least evaluation, like third party evaluators pick up a microscope when the savings are greater than about a gigawatt hour. Anything less than that if it's a small business or a a small plant, if the savings are less than 100,000, I would totally just do the stats. If the savings are a gigawatt hour or greater, I would wanna talk to you, but that $3 million mark, I don't even know how big of a project that would be in your context. But to me, that definitely sounds like I, uh, again, you convince me that we should design a different data collection plan that includes going back on site and doing the measurement by hand.
2: Yeah, I I, I wish I could remember what a three million dollar um, but it's it's in the thousands of of gigawatt hours. What is that? A terawatt hour? Um, and you know it's one it's one piece of equipment. On the other hand, you did get me thinking: is if this was if this could have been a very small vfd and i know that i have fought over the last decade again with technical reviewers to i, I love that phrase you said how much juice do you want to see is the
1: juice worth the squeeze
2: is the juice worth the squeeze and it, it really are there are situations where it's just not worth the effort and if if we had a very a, a much smaller vfd and we could use statistics to help us and, and that's kind of one of the fundamental things i've always uh said to folks is you know always also look at what's the do nothing the cost or the impact of doing nothing so do we really want to throw these kilowatt hours or megawatt hours or terawatt hours away just because we scale. can't come <laughs> you know come to an agreement on an easy way to, or, or the way to, to do the V? let's figure out a way even if we have to be conservative which is again one of the principles if you can't measured accuracy then just pick a lower pick a lower number but don't do we have to pick zero is uh you know make sure that we understand what picking zero does to the impact
1: yeah that that decision of choosing the conservative number sometimes that's even harder to explain than the statistics though like True. but you know that's not the right number yeah I know it's not the right number but it's the appropriate number and they're like that's not MNV and we're like oh actually that's fundamental to mNV
2: Exactly. (laughs) That's beautiful.
0: Okay, guys, this is our last scenario. Your utility called, they know that your MMV reports and MMV plan are good for the third-party evaluation you recently had, but they're having a hard time translating that information for the investors. You need to re-report the values you initially calculated to your boss to present to the utility investors without confusing anyone and making them think your initial numbers were wrong. Good luck, Anna's face, everyone could see it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, oh great, hooray investors.
1: Now investors are really important for utilities and they need to know what these numbers are. Let me guess, they're not only asking for dollar impacts but they want forecasts of what the savings will be over the next two years. And let's say they also want greenhouse gas emissions. Let's say that they want to know their their carbon impact. I think honestly, the very first thing I would do is quadruple check my original values. Like, oh my goodness, if I mess this up or if there's any inconsistency, I'm hosed. Um, and then this, this might sound unusual, but when I think about like the role of a CMVP and the role of MNV, part of it is team assembly like the person who's responsible for the m and has to put together the appropriate team to be able to get the job done and communicate that info. I would either get a dashboard expert or a software developer with a front-end background into my team at this point because we need to make a dashboard that the investors can go log into. They can d- dive in on every project, but at no point ever in this process am I going to send them a spreadsheet.
2: Loving all of that. Um uh, Anna, the when I heard the scenario, the first thing that that popped to mind is that again, my my simple view would would be that this is really all about assigning the dollars to the numbers that we 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 trust in. So my mind went straight away: how do we value these savings? You know, um, which is kind of once uh, a classic, but is a, a fundamental part of M and V is. Do you use an average utility rate, or do you split out peak demand uh, charges versus? Um, is there time of use value? So do do we know enough details about uh, the measurement that we we can attribute uh, the dollars to the right, you know, to to value it accurately? So I was thinking, and maybe I didn't fully understand the scenario, but I I work walk on the I working. I'm working on the assumption that the numbers are correct and we just have to value them. So there's, we're not actually changing anything. We're just telling folks we're putting the dollars to this.
1: Yeah. I think that would work for where I would want to start with trying to figure out like what that value is and how granular our data is. I'm just going to assume that I've got interval data to work with right here we're a modern this yeah. is a modern utility exactly. um, and so we've got sub hourly reporting that we could do and it without any precedent let's say that this is like a new investor um there may two ways that i would start and one is i would go find out what companies the investors also invest in like what's their older portfolio other than just my project? And I would go look at their reports that have been submitted to those same stakeholders and find out like what, obviously, what are the questions they keep asking and want those people to go back to? Go pull that number. I need to see it like that. Because there are going to be similarities between the reports that their entire investment portfolio have. And that's going to clue me into like, how they want to see things valued. If they want that seven to nine peak, or if they want the four to nine peak, or if they want the utility defined peak, I'll be able to I'll be able to find that if I go through the rabbit hole and tracing their documents.
2: That is so helpful and insightful. and I realized this is is my weak and vulnerable spot uh, from experience is valuing energy savings because in my world and in my work, over the last decade, which well, actually, it's nearly a decade and a half. Um, we have not uh, the we have only focused on megawatt hour and and peak kilowatt or technically average uh, kilowatt savings in the, in the peak periods, because this all folds into utility the utility rates, and we're you know our programs have been more concerned about reducing the price of electricity to to consumers. And so the these the the incentive dollars are more. um, We're more we've been more interested in the incentive dollars per megawatt hour, than we have been in the cost savings to the customer. So that's, it's, it's just, you know, I've never had to think about these things. So I, at this point, will bow to your greater knowledge and 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 I do like philosophically when you're talking about real investors is what if you can put the information in a way that they used to or things that are meaningful to them and they may not care about megawatt hours, they may just care about dollars and and how persistent those dollar savings are and things like that. So absolutely going back to to the 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 end user of the M&V, what are they interested in is, again, another very important part of M&V is talk the language of the people who are going to be interested in reading, not say reading the report, but interesting in the outcomes of M&V. What's important to them? Yeah. And make sure you put it that way.
1: Yeah, I think I'm cautious about reporting like savings numbers straight to investors because most of the work that I do, most of my M&V eventually goes through some kind of statistical manipulation, right? Ah. And so I am already operating with that, like there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics modus operandi. And so I have to be really careful. So once I have a number, I can stand behind it forever. Because if I get wishy-washy and I, like we know that facts, yeah, more, more, more cliches and idioms about statistics, like facts are stubborn, but statistics are pliable. Like, we know that I could give you any number, like, but I can't ask and I'm never gonna do the thing with an investor where I'm like, okay, well, what number do you need? Because then I will constantly be walking back my own credibility and my own integrity right. in the numbers that I provided. And so whatever I provide when I'm moving up the chain, you know, away from the facility and away from the utility and away from the resource acquisition paradigm, I like to get out of savings values as soon as possible. Like Any other, any other unit, like I will give you GHGs. I will give you tons of carbon equivalents. I will give you dollars, but anything other than the exact savings value, because that savings value has meaning to the utility with respect to their power planning, right? That's what yes. it is used yes. for. And I'm never going to walk back the number that the utility claims, but the value of that like value is a really squishy concept and so i want to know like what's the value they're interested in and then be able to protect like put my, my my wonderful little kilowatt hour megawatt hour numbers in a bubble that's safe and then just be working off of off of that but never never go back and let that get re-reported or changed or anything
2: that's a yeah excellent perspective and i and just it kind of Listening to you made me think of another concept that I had never I've never considered and I wouldn't even know where to go with, and that is we you know when we're reporting results, we should be reporting the confidence interval and the confidence limit. And when you're saying my megawatt hours are five thousand megawatt hours plus minus two thousand how do you value that? Do you say it's the savings are you know $10,000 Ten thousand dollars plus minus. I've never seen anyone ever do that because that's not yeah, how dollars like work. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's an interesting thought. Again, it's just because I've never had to, never had to do that. We've only reported megawatt hours, so that is a very yeah. frightening thought.
1: No, it's some, it's like a fundamental, one of those fundamental M and B tenets. You know, we've mentioned yeah. it before already once, is that we're supposed to pick the conservative number. Really, I mean, if we push that. To its logical limit, we're supposed to be reporting the lower band of the confidence interval as the number. That's the number. We're supposed to be reporting the minimum possible savings. But context again, and the way that we communicate, we know what would happen if we presented that, that then someone would find out what that confidence band was because we reported it because we're super ethical and we're great at this. And they would say, Ooh, but it's a maximum of this. And then they would add that onto the mean number. And then they would be reporting a number that's like, you know, up to four times greater than the number that we reported, and so we report the one in the middle, and we don't—we pretend significant figures do not exist, and <laughs> because yeah. stakeholders need it. You know, it's—it's it's a really tough thing for a CMVP who cares about precision yeah. to to have to leave that behind once you get out of the spreadsheets and into the reporting.
2: And you're just right. You're raise another thought, which is, uh, and I suspect you've had a similar experience, And you, you kind of alluded to earlier, you know, you want to be, or we as CMVPs want to be comfortable with a number that we're reporting and never go back. And we have had experience where we have pressure from the Ministry of Energy, which are ultimately uh, reporting, you know, it's it's not even the Public Utility Commission, it's actually the I don't know what the equivalent in the US would be, but the state government, the the, the energy department, mm-hmm. and they remember the first number they've ever heard. And yeah. you change it later and you say, Oh, sorry, that wasn't quite what we thought you were asking for, or I'll whatever never the number. It, it is so hard to walk back from a number that somebody heard. It, it, yeah. Particularly if it's good or bad. If it's yeah, in the middle of the road, they'll probably not pay attention to it but so one one has to be very careful there are situations again contextual considerations where you have to be very careful with what you're saying because people and cognitive bias
1: right like you just described anchor bias perfectly and it's a real cognitive bias and it happens to all of us and the cmvp has to be able to say i'm sorry i don't have an estimate yet even though you totally have an estimate, but you can't report it. You're not ready to report it, and you have yep, to be able yep. to stand behind the fact that it's not ready and not get pressured into giving a number that you're going to have to walk back later. Because you never, once you say a number out loud and it came from the almighty hands of a CMVP, it you're never getting it back. It's already been it's already been TikTok a hundred yeah, times, yeah. at least in my social
0: circles. I love that. Um, Thank you guys for sharing your insights. I thought this was really fun to hear your different approaches from uh, you know, being super client facing to diving into the data um, as far as you know, how you would approach the situations first. That was a neat little trend that I saw. Um, do you have any lasting thoughts or any advice for when people are um, starting projects, how, you know, the best way to approach starting a project? Any lasting thoughts?
2: Have friends
0: I'll, who are
1: CMVPs. We can but just talk over each other at the same time. It's probably the best way to do it. John, why don't you uh, go first?
2: Sure, why not? Um, I think just having this conversation is, has crystallized something for me and, and Anna actually called it out uh, specifically is um, that to do V well with, for all the stakeho- stakeholders and with all the contextual or important contextual considerations is you need to have some form of team that has different perspectives and different backgrounds. And I mean, I, you know, I as this was a lot of fun kind of riffing off Anna and kind of just seeing different perspectives, but as uh, I think our concept for this, this podcast is really is you kind of once you hear different people's perspectives and you think about things you didn't think about it's not that challenging to come to a consensus or to a valid approach it it, the danger is not having those conversations and thinking you're a cmvp you got the badge you know everything there is to know and you can get her done to use my non-southern it's probably I shouldn't be making American statements because I'm South African and Canadian so Anyway, that, that just that the big takeaway for me is that you know this is not easily a solo job. You have to to have these different perspectives to get a, a good uh, outcome for stakeholders and uh, within the contextual considerations.
1: Yeah, totally. That's pretty much what I was going to say too. Is have friends who are CMVPs, find avenues. Like when I look at some of the most successful pieces of the energy industry. I look at the organizations that have managed to form successful communities, successful right. collaboratives, where people from competing organizations can still get together. Because once you have that human connection with someone that you respect and trust and you know knows different stuff than you, you have a sounding board. You can yeah. always call a friend. You don't have to give them the private client information. You, you, you're not gonna spill the beans by saying, I have a fan and there was this VFD and the production line changed. Uh, even just calling to whine and vent about your terrible data will be enough for them to help give you that like oh we can solve this what did you try the thing the thing that was in that document like oh I've never read that document oh well there's this document here I emailed it to you you know like we all know different things we only know what we know and our friends in the CMVP community and our friends in the energy industry are brilliant and they're here to help
2: it almost sounds like a plug for AEE because that's part of AEE's mission is to have a community of people that you know and friends you can trust and you can call.
1: Now that and, was uh, a plug for AEE. Sorry? <laughs> now that was a plug for AEE. Exactly. But it
2: is. <laughs> it's, it's kind of what, you know, I mean, I've, I have made my best friends that I can call to wine and through AEE. And through the conferences and the webinars and things, you get to know people who you can you can call. So that was yeah. completely unscripted and unpaid for, but it just came to me.
0: Thank you guys for your time. Um, this has been full of energy and a podcast. We'll see you next month.